0: A Sunday, April 16th, Sunday morning. Our message this morning is Showdown in the Judean Wilderness. We're going to be in Genesis 3 if you want to turn there. If not, I rarely lie when I'm preaching. So I'll read it to you. I love the transforming power of the Gospel. It's what excites me. It's what I love so much about this Sunday morning we're talking about a power that transforms somebody from death right into life. Whether you look at our humble little building and see its transformation or our pulpit that two weeks ago stood before you nasty wood laminate, I believe that God is in the business of taking random chaos and bringing light into it. And my life's proof of that. I'm fortunate enough to have all of my sets of parents here this morning. Got my father, my stepfather my mother and my stepmother here. I'm proud as could be of that. God uses all kind of tools in your life to form you and shape you. The sooner you wise up to the circumstances in your life being God's tools to shape you, the happier your life will be. No reason to go through life kicking and whining and wondering why you didn't get the toy you wanted on your fourth birthday. (laughs) Y'all in Genesis 3? Y'all know that Genesis 3 introduces a problem in humanity, doesn't it? God basically told man that He wanted man to depend upon Him for what knowledge of good and evil man would have. In other words, if you have to choose between two things, I want you to depend upon Me, Adam. I want you to depend upon Me to show you the good that you should do. When man rejected this advice, this command from God, He became a god to himself. And this introduced a problem into mankind. And that problem's death. Craig's a nurse. Despite all of the medical advancements that mankind has made, our mortality rate is still 100%. There are no human beings that do not die. When God said, if you eat of the tree, you will die, He didn't say, if you eat of it, you will become dead. I wished He had, because when Adam saw Eve drop dead after eating it, He might not have eaten it. It was a process, a slow process of decay that as I stand before you today, you can see is working on me. (laughs) What was once up here by my shoulders is now down here by my waist. The hair that was in the center of the back of my head is now migrated down my back. This is the process (laughs) of decay. I shouldn't have spilled that Rogaine in the shower, huh? (laughs) Growing in all the wrong places. I'm telling you this, because death is a problem that all mankind's faced. doesn't matter whether you are Chinese, Vietnamese, from Canada, Mexico, or America, we all have an appointment with the same thing. My mother and I watched a movie last night, The March of the Penguins. Anybody seen that? Raise your hand if you've seen it. I almost couldn't finish the show. These poor little penguins are in 58 degrees below zero weather, doing their very best to protect this egg. If the egg spends a minute outside of the penguin's little covering, it dies. These poor penguins, man. <laughs> what an existence. They spend their whole life huddled together trying not to die. That's, that's basically what you do if you're a penguin, is try not to die. And they had just one mama penguin on there, and her baby died. You know what she did? She tried to take the baby of the person next to her, and the flock wouldn't let it, or herd, or whatever you call penguins. they wouldn't let it. That's because death hurts. You ever been to a funeral? Guys, it hurts. There is no question that the biggest enemy that mankind faces is the first one that was ever introduced, and it is death, and it hurts. If you had a little dog that died at some point in your life, it's amazing. How a little creature that walks on four legs. I've got one. Her name's Daisy. She's about this tall, about that wide. No, I'm kidding. She's, you know, maybe a half a dog tall and a dog and a half long. Something's wrong with her. She's a dachshund. She doesn't look like she should. And one day when she dies, it will break my heart. This monster faces us all, and we all have an appointment with it. That's a problem that mankind faces. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter whether you're rich. Or poor, whether you're good looking like Judah or ugly like me, we all face this problem. The first time that this problem is seriously addressed in the Bible is in the third chapter, 15th verse. So let's go ahead and read it together. We'll start in the 14th verse just because I'm a preacher and I like to talk a lot. So the Lord God said to the serpent, by the way, I've often misquoted this. As much as I preach on it, I tell you that this is what God said to the woman. It most certainly is not what God said to the woman. It's what God said to the enemy of the woman. I want you to get this. The enemy has been defeated. Watch. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Said from this woman, the first one to eat the fruit, from her, from the one that very first contemplated the idea of allowing death to enter the world because of your cunning, serpent, is going to come the answer to the problem. Death has entered the world, but now we find out somebody is going to come from her body that will crush the head of this problem. You get a hint, 4,000 years before Jesus ever lived, you get a clue. In this showdown between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it's not going to be an easy victory. He's not just going to throw a lightning bolt from the heavens. There's going to have to be a human being and He's going to suffer loss. Anybody in here would like to volunteer to have your heel bitten by a snake? No, I'll pass on that if I can, right? No, thank you, uh, Pass. Nobody wants that. This is when Jesus was crying out in the garden, "Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, your will be done. Because it hurt. It was hard to do. Not just the death on the cross, the separation he would feel. The prophecy in Genesis 3:15 says that he would be stricken on the heel, but he would crush the head of the enemy. Adam heard this promise. He had a little more of his brain working than you and I. He understood exactly what God was meaning. He looked at his wife, who previously had been called, Wow, man! And he said, You are Eve. You'll be the mother of the living. On the day that death entered this world, the enemy of mankind that we would all face, all have an appointment with, Adam heard the voice of God to the enemy of mankind and said, My wife is going to be the mother of life she's going to be a mother to everything that lives on the planet. He should have been depressed. He should have been downcast. Disobeyed God and now death will reign. But he was excited because he heard the promise of God. The problem introduced in Genesis is death. The solution must be life. That's why we're here this morning. All the sermons that seminary students will teach you. All of the complicated systems of substitution and restitution in the Bible. All of the symbolism of somebody taking a, a price for you and atoning for your sin, all of those things come down to one problem and one answer. Men die, and in Christ there is life. But to prove that, the man had to die. That's what gets him in a tomb. Move on to Genesis 4 for me. The problem that's entered mankind as the result of sin is death. In Genesis 4, starting around verse 6. you like that. I give you new Scriptures. You don't even have to turn a page, right? Yeah. <laughs> In Genesis 4, starting around verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Who's Cain? He's the firstborn offspring of Adam and Eve. Now, they've just heard this promise, somebody's going to come who's going to crush death. They're excited. They're looking forward to it. As human beings, we like simple problems and quick answers, don't we? We want to pull up at Burger King at the first window, place our order, and at the second window, when the car stops, the food better be ready. Well, these human beings were no different than us. They're excited Their firstborn son. I've got a firstborn son. All my hopes are set on him and on what his brother and his sister will do. I know what it's like to love intensely. This mother and this father looked at this baby with expectancy. He's going to conquer the power of death, he's going to crush the head of the enemy. But there was a problem. Verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Isn't it interesting? The problems with mankind have not changed a lot in the last 6,000 years. They show up in two ways. Why are you angry? And what do they say next? Why is your face so downcast? You go walk around in the mall. It's Resurrection Sunday. But you will see people with downcast face shedding the blessings of God. Like a pole turned upside down are their mouths unable to see or catch anything good from God. When God saw a problem with Cain, He announced it in two areas. You are angry and you are frowning. He needed to get the first facelift the world had ever seen. He needed to pull at the corners of his mouth and learn to be happy in his situation. I don't know how difficult your situations are this morning. I know that this world brings some pretty stiff trials. Whatever they are, you have to figure out how to be angry at the right things and sin not. You have to learn how to force your frown into a smile. If you don't, you will live on hell on the earth, in hell, and when this life is over, you'll just get an extended tour. But when you learn how to live in the kingdom of God, which consists of righteousness, joy, peace, happiness, and the Holy Ghost, when you learn to do that, When this life is over, you get an extended tour of righteousness, joy, peace, happiness, and the Holy Ghost. So God looks at Cain and He says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Cain doesn't even answer him. If you do what is right, God will accept you. There is no question. So then what is the problem? Well, the first problem is we all die. The second problem is we can't seem to do what's right even when we know what we should do. That's why the book of James doesn't define sin as doing something that you shouldn't. I know that's all we ever think about. I'm a Christian. I don't curse. I don't do this. I don't do that. And we all have our different list. Some don't wear certain kind of clothes. Some don't drink certain kinds of beverages. Some don't say certain kinds of words. Some don't do this. Some don't do that. All what they don't... Christians are not defined by what they don't do. Saints, that's wrong. That's really, really wrong. In fact, by that standard, you can't tell the difference between a Mormon and a Christian. Because neither one do certain things. You can't tell the difference between a moral atheist and a Christian by that standard. Christians are not defined by what they don't do and sin is not defined by what you don't do. Although it can be sin. The book of James tells us that sin is knowing the good that you should do and not doing it. What makes a Christian a Christian? What separates you? A sheep from a goat. The things that you do for Jesus. Many will say in that day, Matthew 7, 21 says, Lord, Lord, and that shall not enter the kingdom. Who enters the kingdom? Only He who does the will of My Father in Heaven. Why didn't Jesus say only the ones that keep to our doctrinal code? Why didn't Jesus say only the ones that measure up according to the standard of conduct established by the Evangelical Association? Because none of it matters. That's all secondary. What is number one in your life is doing the good that God has called you to do. Now friends, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to encourage Mandy Wakefield to live like hell all the way to heaven. I'm not trying to tell her that she can plunge into sin and dissipation and accomplish the good that God's called her to do. The righteous lifestyle is a byproduct of setting your will, setting your goal on doing what God called you to do. But back to Cain and the original problem. Death come upon all of mankind. That's problem number one. Problem number two is man is angry and sullen and downcast. And why? Because if he does what is right, he'll be accepted. And yet, he cannot seem to do what is right. Notice my children are never more disappointed than when they cannot win their father's approval. As a father, I try to remember to give it to them, to encourage them. Sometimes I just don't. They're trying hard to read the right words. They're trying hard to get their homework done. But they're weak. They're just little kids. They're flawed. Their little flesh pulls them in every direction. In a world before Ritalin, I would say they were all ADD. You try to hold the five-year-old's attentions for more than 37 seconds. It's like the attention span of a gnat, you know? He's trying his best to think what two plus two is, and somehow he's just being pulled off into the backyard where he can go bang, bang, shoot Indians and they're dead. Mankind is not all that different. We are trying at times to do what is right, but there is something warring within us, struggling within us. Saints, we've portrayed the wrong image to the world. We've told the world that in Christ there is no struggle. In Christ there is no war inwardly. In Christ you have nothing but victory and roses. Not so. Not so. The 7th chapter of Romans was right when Paul said he had two laws at work within his members. And they waged war against each other. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is there is a war within to do what is right. Your nature is pulling at you. It's pulling at the corners of your mouth. It is trying to beat you down. But you count it dead and Christ alive. You count sin dead and righteousness alive. But Christians, don't you ever deny that the power of sin is trying to work within you. That would make you some new class of human being. Something nobody could relate to. You ever wondered why so many people say Christians are hypocrites? I'm here to tell you as a pastor it's because they are. Don't you be. Admit that there's a struggle and that you're doing everything that you can to win it. And then work to win it. Don't walk around with your nose in the air better than everybody else. The first problem that entered mankind was death. The second problem is mastery of sin. It's not just that we die, but every time we have the choice between good and evil before us, we have a problem doing what is right. Look what God says. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Saints, you get this. There is a devil out there. He is crafty. He is sly. He is shrewd. He will pick the best of voices and the shiniest and prettiest of lights. Whatever it takes to get your attention. And He desires to have you. He doesn't desire to play with you. He doesn't desire to be your friend. He doesn't desire to give you good things. He tells us He desires to steal from you, to kill you, and destroy you. Open your eyes. Look around. What's happening to lost man all around us? Do you see... Wonderful, happy people. Drive in Houston traffic. Look to your right. Look to your left. They are ready to shoot each other because they have been stolen from. They have been lied to. Their lives are being destroyed and they're in the midst of being killed. What makes you different? Well, that's what we're talking about today. We all face the same two problems. How do we master sin and what do we do about this problem of dying? In an ancient book called Job, I was ter- told you turn there when you're unemployed. Look for the book of Job. You can turn to the right. We're going to go to Job. Job's right in the middle of your Bible, hugged up next to the Psalms. If you're in the Thompson chain like my son Judah, we're going to be on page 572. Two problems that face mankind. Death and how on earth do you master sin? What do you do about it? And in Job 9, starting in verse 32, Job complains. Some people say the book of Job is prior to the Noahic flood. Now, I don't know. I've never been that smart. But whether it was before or after the Noahic flood, it's old, friends. It contains information from the most ancient of mankind. Listen to what man has said from the groanings of his spirit from the beginning of these two problems. Verse 32, Speaking of God, He is not a man like me that I might answer Him. That we might confront each other in court if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay His hand upon both of us, someone to remove God's rod from me so that His terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of Him, but as it now stands, I can't. Have you never felt like that? You did your best and failed. You're trying to talk to God, but there is no answer. A resounding silence. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a better kid than I was. I had decided in my mind, I need to quit the foul language that spews from my mouth. When I was about Judah's age, I had learned that I could talk in the adult circles using adult words. And because I was fairly articulate, Some of them found it amusing. This was a place for me. I could hang out by the tennis courts or at the country club and chat with people older than I was, more experienced than I was, and I found some acceptance because of the proficiency with which I could use their language. As I got a little older and the conviction of the Holy Spirit began to set in on me, I knew that this was wrong. But what do I do about it? I thought, I know! I know what I'll do about it! Every time I slip and say a curse word because this was something that I didn't want to do, I'll do push-ups. I'll punish myself with five push-ups for every bad word. Friends, I got to where I could do hundreds of push-ups in one setting, but I could not control my tongue. I began to struggle with this problem and said, if only for somebody to lay his hand upon God and lay his hand upon me, then I could speak up. I could tell Him what my problem was and that I needed help. But where was this someone? I had heard about Jesus all of my life. I grew up around people that talked about Jesus. I went to church where they talked about Jesus, but I had never met Him. I could quote Romans 10, 9 and 10. I could win Bible awards in school, but nothing had changed in my life. He had never laid His hand upon me and upon God to make peace where there was no peace. Every night I tell you, please don't come back Jesus I am not ready because I knew in my heart I was condemned all of the doctrines of eternal security all of the comfort from a loving family all of the praises from a pastor could not change what I knew when I was alone in my room at night I am not ready to meet with God I have the same two problems that all of mankind does I'm going to die and I cannot master sin. I did everything I knew how to do in the flesh to master sin. So what are we to do about these problems, saints? We already said that Christians face the same two problems. So what are we to do? In the nation of Israel's culture, God began to reveal how He would answer these problems of acceptance for mankind and of a solution for death. Turn with me to Exodus. So, What's wrong with this preacher? He only talks out of the Old Testament. Saints, I'm sorry. I hope that doesn't offend you. But I figure all of your life you've heard preaching from the New Testament. I expect you to know it. Did you know that in Israel, by the time a child reached five, he had the first five books of the Bible memorized? Did you know that in this country, Jews had immigrated here from other lands? I read about a book a book by a man named Michael Esses. At five years old, he lived in Dublin. His parents were immigrants. He spoke no English. They spoke no English and lived in America. His father couldn't communicate with anybody except the other Judean Jews that had immigrated to Syria and then the United States. And yet at five years old, that's my son Gabriel's age. I don't know if my kid can name all of the Power Rangers. But at five... The Judean Jews that had immigrated to Brooklyn at five could quote all of the first five books of the Bible and tell you an explanation of what their rabbi thought that they meant. Do you think we neglect this book? This book has come to up from 44 different authors written on as many as four continents over a time period of 1,500 years its printers and writers were solved in two. They were burned at the stake. They were thrown in holes. The very first book that was ever printed on a printing press was the Bible. And the people who printed it were burned on it by the church of their day who considered the Bible a pest. That's what they called it in Latin, a pest. And it sits on our shelves and goes unread. Isn't that an insult to the blood of the people that died to get you this book? Isn't that an insult to the king that the book is about who died to get you this book? D.L. Moody tells a story about a little boy. He said, Mama, whose book is that on our table? Oh, honey, that's the Lord's book. Mama, don't you think we ought to return it since we're not reading it? <laughs> D.L. Moody said you ought to bind every Bible in Elephant's Hide. It ought to be the most read book in your house. Saints, it's time to revive a love for God's Word. Not for preachers. Not for lay workers. For every Christian everywhere, there is no excuse for not knowing God's Word. Let me ask you something. Beyond John 3.16, if a gun was put to your head today, could you quote John 3.17? I'm not saying that to beat you down. I hope with all of my heart to fan into flame something that God put there that He means to grow, to consume your life and transform everybody around you. You can see I'm scared of small beginnings. I believe God can take a tiny little spark and light a raging fire that will consume you. Y'all in Exodus... You thought I forgot about that, didn't you? In Exodus 30, we're going to read something verse 11. Y'all know there's this wicked show that comes on TV with some idiot that likes to talk to dead people. What do they call that thing? Crossing over, over, right? Or crossing something. Crossing God, I don't know. This is a biblical idea. At least biblical wording. It's just not being used biblically. There was a term in ancient Israel called the crossing over. It didn't mean what they think it means on the science channel or whatever that guy comes on. It meant something else. I want to read to you about it. See if Jesus may have mentioned it in His preaching and teaching. In Exodus 30, verse 11, "...then the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord's ransom for his life at the time he is counted." The word Israel means prince with God. This was a nation and a kingdom of royal priests and kings. That's what they were called to be. And when you counted them, to number them, to see how many people are in this prince with God. Who is counted among the Lord's number? The first thing that had to be done is a ransom had to be paid for you to be counted among the Lord's number. Each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come upon them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted, is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 giras. The half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. Do you know what the tent of meeting was? It was a man of God's tent. His name was Moses. And he used to go hang out at this tent and meet with God. That was built from the offerings that the Israelites gave. But why offering? And why did a rich guy have to give the same thing as a poor guy? God was trying to instill through His nation, the chief nation on earth, the nation of priests, that every life that exists on this planet is destined for death. And to get out of death and into life, to cross from one to the other, some price has got to be paid. And it's not according to your wealth or your lack thereof. Every life has a price that has to be paid. Did you know that this John 3.16 Everyone quotes and holds up at football and baseball games. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse is going to tell you that this world stands condemned already. Everybody on the planet has got a death sentence already. Israel understood that. They were born into death. They had the death problem. And a ransom had to be paid for their life. And the same price would be paid for Judah's that would be paid for David's or Tony's or Cassidy's or Patricia's or Julie's. It didn't matter. It was not according to your wealth. Everybody had the same problem and everybody needed the same solution. Somebody had to pay a ransom. This allowed you to be accepted in the nation of Israel. Somebody said, Where are, you? are you an Israelite? Well, I wear the signs on my flesh of circumcision. I walk with the people of Israel, the prince with God, and most of all, a price was paid for me to be here. That made them Israelites. They called it the crossing over. Keep that in your mind for a minute, the crossing over, because we're going to move on. I want to tell you about another promise given to Israel. The problem that was addressed in the crossing over was how do I find acceptance? Well, God gave them a very specific thing to do. Pay a price for your life. Then you'll be accepted as a prince with me. You pay a price for your life and there will be acceptance from me. Turn with me to Isaiah. You'll be taking a right in your journey through God's Word. And we're going to land in Isaiah 25. Here's another problem. It has to do with the second. Another promise that has to do with the second problem that came upon mankind. Somebody tell me when you're in Isaiah 25. Y'all talk to me or I will cry and run out like a scared child. Actually, we put only one door in this sanctuary. And Matthew stands between you and it. (laughs) I'm kidding, saints. In Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. There are so many things that I'd like to say about that verse. (laughs) Suffice it to say that the Lord's going to throw a party for people. It's going to occur on a specific mountain in a specific place. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all of the earth. Saints, why does death hurt so bad? Where is the sting in death? Why do we hate it so much? It's a continual reminder of man's failure. Deep down in the core of your being, you know that we die because we've done something wrong. We do our best to convince ourselves it's a natural part of life. It's the circle of life. We teach our children through cartoons that. We teach some coping mechanism to keep it from hurting us so. But inwardly, you know that it's wrong. You should never be separated from the ones that you love. You should never have to watch somebody pass from this life into another place dying of cancer. Something inside you hurts and you know that it's wrong. And the promise remains. On a specific mountain, in a specific place called Israel, God will remove the disgrace from the earth for His people. Everybody who has shed tears, they will be wiped away in a specific place at a specific time. This will happen. Where is the hope in Christianity? The hope in Christianity is to be numbered among God's people because a ransom has been paid. You find acceptance with God because a ransom has been paid. You have crossed from one place to another. Where is the hope in Christianity? Because death is not our destiny. There is a day when God will remove the sheet that enfolds all nations. He will remove the shroud that covered our heads and shown us to be a disgrace, He will remove it for His people. This is a promise that Isaiah said in 740 B.C., looking forward to a point in time, saying, at that time. I told you this message was down in the Judean wilderness. There's a point in history in which all of this would come to a head. As we used to say when I was a kid in high school, Let's get it There's going to be a fight. That's what enmity is. That's what God promised the serpent. And He did not let him down. There would be a fight. Post 9-11, we might say, let's roll. There is a place in which we're going to draw a line in the sand. And something will be done about mankind's problems. It will no longer be a futuristic hope. There will be a day when there will be a fight and somebody will win. Before we get there, turn with me back to Genesis 22. I'd love to teach on the whole chapter of Genesis 22, but I'm well aware that I'm fighting with your hunger pains that are gnawing at your spine at this very moment. In Genesis 22, very familiar chapter of the Bible for some of you, this is about the Father of many nations whose name was Exalted Father and changed to Father of all peoples, basically. Who had a son whose name meant laughter because God laughs at His enemy's threats. His promised son. His only son. And he and this son are going to a place, a mountain, in the region of Moriah that some would later call Calvary or Golgotha. And this promised son would ask a very, very... Important question comes in the sixth verse. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said, Father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire And the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This was a question 2,000 years before Jesus. 4,000 years before us. A very, very important question. There are two problems that face mankind. One is a battle for acceptance, mastering sin and doing what is right. The other is what do we do about death? Isaac says, Father, where is this lamb? Isaac didn't know he was the lamb, did he? And yet in God's mercy, that's not the way it turned out. Turn with me to Exodus 12. I want to read to you a few verses about this lamb. This week the Jews celebrated Passover, a very important feast. You know what happens at Passover. On the 10th of Nisan or Abib, Jewish family would take into their A lamb. They would inspect it for four days to make sure that this lamb was perfect, that it had no flaw, no blemish. It had to be the very best that they had to give. Then after everybody had had some emotional attachment to this lamb, after everybody had laid their hands on it and loved it and seen that it was innocent, and yet it would stand there before them while they held a knife to its throat. The Father, Father's your priest in your homes supposed to be priest in your homes. The father, because he was the priest in the home, would cut the little lamb's throat and throw its blood in the faces of the children and of the wife and of himself. Then he would go out and he would paint his doorpost with the blood. you remember what it symbolized? Death was coming upon the whole world. Their world at the time was Egypt. Death was coming upon it. And only the life of this little lamb, only its blood, would count as a ransom for them. This was teaching them through their culture something innocent would have to die. Something that you love. Something that you cherish. Something that it's hard for you to watch. Anybody see the movie Passion of the Christ? Not the kind of movie you go back and watch three and four more times the same day, is it? Somebody asked me how I felt after watching the movie. I felt just like somebody had taken Matthew or Brad or somebody else that I love with all of my heart and beat them in front of my eyes for a few days. I felt just like I'd seen my friend be beaten up. For 1,600 years, the Jewish people killed lambs. They covered their doorposts with its blood. Reading this book about Michael Essis, they didn't kill lambs in his day in America. His particular Jewish community would do it with chickens. I don't know why. I know an awful lot about ancient Judaism and very little about modern Judaism. But he said he hated this day more worse than any other day in the year when his father would take the sons down into the basement where nobody else was around and explain to them about atonement. Now, modern Judaism doesn't use blood to atone. But in Michael S.'s family they did. And for 1,600 years in Israel, they did. They hated the day, Michael S. said, because he could hear and see this brutal thing happening to an animal that didn't deserve it. In the 12th chapter of Exodus, God reveals a little more about what would happen with these lambs. The 21st verse. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out the door of this house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on top and the sides of the door frame and will pass over the doorway." And He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as He promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when He struck down the Egyptians. The people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses. This was to be set up as a commemoration of the event. For 1,600 years, the words of Isaac would echo, Father, where is the Lamb? It was promised to Eve that somebody would come and crush the head of the enemy. We overlooked the part about... Being stricken on the heel didn't understand it, we were waiting for the one who would bring victory. Father, where is the lamb for sixteen hundred years they had lambs that they killed. they put the blood of the lamb on the paid a ransom to be included in Israel. This blood symbolized death passing over them so that they would be left in life. Father, where is the lamb? Turn with me to John one. We're going to start reading around verse 29. The question that Isaac asked his father in 2000 in B.C. was answered somewhere around 30 A.D. Father, where is the land? In John 1, Twenty-nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Who was John? John was a prophet come to prepare the way for the Messiah, the Anointed One, the King of Israel. John was the one who would come in the spirit and ministry of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers and the children towards God. John was the one who would bring down fire from heaven and call the nation back to the one true God. Isaac asked, Father, where is the Lamb? And John looks up in the distance, seeing Jesus coming towards him and says, Look, or your Bible might say, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. There was 4,000 years of human history leading up to the point... Where one man would announce a Passover lamb coming to take away the sin of the world. Some people call it Good Friday. Others see it as a Wednesday crucifixion. No matter what you think, the Bible goes through great lengths to show that Jesus was killed and killed at the same time as the Passover lamb. Because there are two problems that mankind has. One is, how do I find acceptance with God? The other is, we're all appointed to die. The Passover lamb would provide for you a way for death to pass over. Turn with me to John 5. Our whole lives we've been told, believe on Jesus, die, and go to heaven. Hope they prop me up beside a jukebox when I die, or by a fishing hole, or on another planet with a baby playing a harp with wings. We have all of these otherworldly conceptions of what heaven is. Let's see what Jesus calls eternal life. Let's see what the one identified as the Lamb of God tells us our hope should be. In John 5, starting in verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer, "...I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself." Boy, that's a revelation, isn't it? What if Cain had looked right at the Father when he said, "'Cain, why are you so angry?' Why are you so downcast? I just can't do it by myself, Father. I wonder if that story would have turned out different. Perhaps the first murderer would have been the first life giver. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can do only what He sees His Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He said a time is coming and has now come. How can that time be both? Jesus could see it approaching in the distance as people began to hear His Word and believe what He was saying. They were crossing over right then at that moment from the camp that was condemned to death to Israel, the Prince with God, those destined to rule with God in life. And yet, a time is still coming in the future where bodies will literally hear the voice of God and come out of the ground to life, everlasting life. In verse 40, Jesus condemns His hearers that do not believe Him. They don't condemn Him, or He doesn't condemn them for not accepting His message. He doesn't condemn them because they misunderstand His virgin birth. He doesn't condemn them because they don't think He's a king. He doesn't condemn them for any other reason than they refuse to accept from Him the answer that plagues all mankind, death. In verse 40, He says, Yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. The problem that had come upon mankind was death. The solution was life. And that life is found in Jesus. In Hebrew, the words for crossing over had become a slogan. To be in Israel was to have crossed over from death to life. I imagine Jesus upset the apple cart When John the Baptist announced Him as a Passover lamb come to take away their sin, they had already crossed from death to life, or so they thought. And yet, don't we find the very same problem in American churches? Eighty percent of America claims to be a Christian, having crossed from death to life, but living a life that shows nothing but death. Gandhi examined Christians. He said, "Your Christ I like. It's His followers I have a problem with. Saints, I have the same problem. You can go your whole life long and only meet a handful, some might even say a remnant, who would really die for the Gospel. We are supposed to be counted among the people of God, believing not that you have come up with a shekel, but that somebody's life was given as a ransom for you to be in the people of God. Having... A right standing with God. Righteousness that's credited to you by faith so that you would be accepted even when you did not do what was right because He did everything that was right. Turn with me to Luke 4. We're going to wrap this up here shortly. There was a showdown destined in 4,000 B.C. God Himself spoke to our enemy via the serpent. And He said, I will place... Enmity That is extreme hostility. Warfare. I will place warfare between the descendants of the woman and your descendants. You will strike him on the heel, but he will crush your head. Victory would come at a great price. Victory would be something that was hard fought, but it would come. There would be a showdown at some place, on some mountain, at some time. I imagine that the enemy grew quite cocky. I bet his pride swelled because every time somebody rose to the challenge, we have the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. He's here. This could be him. He could be the deliverer. His very name means spear. It could be him. But when sin crouched at his door, he did not master it. It mastered him. Well, who could it be then? Maybe Noah. Noah was a righteous man unlike all of the others on earth. Maybe it's Noah. So the enemy begins to examine him. Stands up to him. But Noah was found to be guilty and with sin. Got drunk right off the boat. That's hard to do on grape juice, isn't it? Well, it wasn't Noah. Maybe it's Abraham. Abraham is said to be a friend of God. God seems to treat him differently. He seems to treat him like somebody who's in right standing, who's found acceptance. Maybe Abraham will stand up to this enemy. Maybe he'll be the one that crushes the head. And the devil began to watch him. No. There are times that Abraham would lose faith. He'd even go to his Egyptian maidservant to produce a child not believing that God's Word was true to him. It wasn't him. Every man that ever stood against this satanic power fell and bowed the need. He didn't master sin. It mastered him. And so they could not find... Acceptance, and they could not solve the death problem. Perhaps it was Moses. Well, aside from killing an Egyptian and striking a rock more times than he should have, Moses seemed like a pretty good guy. And yet, fault was found in him. Through Moses came a standard by which mankind could be measured. And as much as that standard showed life and was beautiful, it showed just how guilty... And damaged mankind would be. The promise looked less hopeful and more hopeless than could have ever been. It didn't matter whether we were talking about Daniel or Ezra or Nehemiah or Jeremiah or Obadiah or Amos. Every man the knee. And now we find ourselves in the Judean wilderness, just outside Jericho, just northwest of the Dead Sea. What a backdrop! Just northwest of the Dead Sea. Is there a bigger monument on the planet to man's failure than the Dead Sea? The lowest place on the planet Earth. So far down, it's below sea level. So far from God that not one living thing dwells there. Could there be a bigger monument? Well, if that was not symbolic enough, this place, this Judean wilderness, overlooked a kingdom. you know which kingdom it overlooked? Jericho the very first one that God told His people to knock down, not by strength, not by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. They simply marched around it using the authority of the ram's horn and the Spirit that God gave them to announce a clear call. And after seven days, it fell. At the triumph of man being obedient to God, seeing the kingdom of the world fall, coupled right next to man's lowest place on the planet, Jesus found himself being tempted in a Judean wilderness. Now, when we say wilderness, we think of Paul Bunyan and big trees that are cut down by burly men who eat pancakes and wear flannel. In Israel, a wilderness is a barren, rocky place absent from life giving water. In Luke chapter 4, the first Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I would say so. When's the last time you went four days without eating? Those of you that think fasting is to gain spiritual power, why did the devil come to him on the fortieth day? This is the weakest, lowest point in a human's existence. He's gone as long as a human being can go without food unless he would die. He pushed it to the very brink. The first man, Adam, was in a tropical garden of paradise walking with God in the morning and entertaining the serpent in the evening. The second man was in a place barren of water with nothing but wild animals around him and being tempted in the 40th day of his hunger, the devil said to him, "If you are the Son of God, I want you to notice something, Saints. It is normal, it is natural, and it is sinful for us to question the Word of God. What did the devil tell Eve? Did God really say? What does he tell? Jesus, If you are the Son of God, of course you have your doubts when you read. Of course, there are times when you're just not sure." That's the devil trying to steal from you what is good. He always calls into question God's Word. That's why it's so important that you read it and know what it says instead of just listening and being spoon-fed on a Sunday morning. Jesus answered, I'm sorry, the devil said to Him, If you are the Son of God, this tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, Man does not live on bread alone the devil tempted jesus with something natural something that his flesh would yearn for something that he would crave and jesus answered with something spiritual something that was what god wanted for man something that he had learned by the way where did he learn it can anybody quote that verse it's deuteronomy 8 why don't we know that saints why can we quote john 3:16 and we cannot quote deuteronomy 8 Jesus didn't quote John 3.16. He hadn't even said that yet. His sword came from the Torah. Perhaps it is good for something at all. And it's not just an Old Testament. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and i can and i can give it to anyone i want to so if you will worship me it will all be yours i want you to get this the devil offered him the easy way the quick way the fast track because he didn't understand who he was dealing with this was not any other man who would simply bow a knee to him when pressured because this man god had reached down and literally put himself into you can think of Jesus' body like a glove for God's hand. And as he's talking with the devil, and the devil is tempting him, and Jesus is answering with scriptures from Deuteronomy, he is bowling up his fist and getting ready to deliver a knockout blow. There would be a showdown in this Judean wilderness. The devil had grown cocky, four thousand years of his supremacy over mankind, able to get him like David to stay home when would be at war to be on a rooftop gazing at a woman when he should have been praying and investing in the kingdom of God. Able to get men to bow their knee to Him and suddenly He has found one man who is full of the Spirit of God. And whenever He tempts him with something that every other man had and would fall for, this man hit him with the Word. There would be a showdown because a ransom had to be paid. Because mankind had two basic problems. They couldn't be accepted by God since they couldn't do what was right, and they would all die. Jesus always did what was right. Job asked the question if only there were someone to lay his hand upon me and upon God, then I could speak up without fear. We have a man now who is standing in the desert at the weakest point of human existence willing to stand against the enemy, succeeding where others had failed. He's trying to show something. He's trying to show that He is the One who would be stricken on the heel, but He would crush the enemy's head. He warned His disciples that it would happen. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. They had only seen victory in Jesus. They were not prepared to see His heels stricken. And yet, it had been promised for 4,000 years. In John 5.24, Jesus said, If you believe in Me, you have crossed from death to life. But what gives Him the right to say it? Is it just because He didn't eat when the devil came to Him? Is it just because He didn't bow a knee in worship Is it just because He answered the devil's temptations with Scripture? Friends, it is not. In fact, at the end of this temptation, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 13, when the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. The lion was seeking somebody to destroy, to devour. He couldn't get Jesus in His weakest point, so what would He do? Well, Jesus had one more hurdle to prove. It wasn't enough to live sinlessly, although He did. For ten, from the 10th to the 14th of Nisan, or Abib, He stood up in the temple every day, allowing them to examine Him just like they examined their Passover lambs. On one of those days, He said, Can any of you prove Me guilty of sin? He was showing that he fulfilled the requirement. That he was in right standing with God. That what Cain couldn't do, he had done. He had mastered sin. But that was not enough. That was only one problem. That was as the result of sin. As the result of death. It didn't fix the problem of death. What on earth could this man do? Mastering sin all of his life. Teaching others about righteousness. What could he do? That only solved one problem. He could teach you how to master sin, but that didn't fix the first problem that came upon mankind. Turn with me to Hebrews 7. Promise I'm not teasing you. We will close. But don't you want to hear the rest of the story? Job cried out for an intercessor. Another way to call an arbitrator is a priest. A priest is one who mediates. A priest is one who makes offerings on your behalf. A priest is one who helps bridge the gap between you and God. In Hebrews 17, or 7, verse 16, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his human ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Why is Easter so important? Why is the empty tomb that Judah read about before we started the message so important? It's based on the power of an indestructible life. Jesus living sinless showed that He had mastery over sin where Cain and every other human being didn't. But that was not enough. The problem that came upon mankind was death. Jesus had to submit to death so that He could overcome death on the basis of an indestructible life. This qualifies Him to be your ransom counted in the number of God. It qualifies Him to be your Passover Lamb causing you to cross from death to life. It qualifies Him as the one human being that has ever lived in all of history that death could not hold down. That means when He says He has power over death, We have every reason to believe that he does. This is not a blind faith. This is not a faith that simply believes without examining. We have every—I have stood in the empty tomb on two occasions. We have every reason to believe that this man has power over death. Hebrews two eight teaches us that at the present we don't see everything subject to Jesus. You see death. You see chaos. You see hunger and famine and children starving, weak, emaciated, and covered in flies, and you say, how could God let this happen? There have always been two powers in this world. Sin that you must master and the power of the indestructible life that you must submit to. The choice is the same as it was for Cain but now we have a God who has proven He has power over sin, power over death. It's your job to yield to Him and allow Him to help you. In all of your questioning, in all of your reasoning, don't reason Him out. In Matthew 13, verse 10, we hear Matthew quote Isaiah and say these people are always hearing, but they're never understanding. They are always seeing, but they are never perceiving. Their hearts have become hard and calloused. We've heard about Jesus on the radio. You've heard about Jesus on the television. You've probably passed 15 or 20 churches on your way to this one. And our hearts have become hard and calloused. We're fond of looking at the leaders in Israel and saying, how could they have rejected Jesus? How on earth could they not have recognized all of the miracles, all of the great things that he did? They didn't all reject him. Most did, just like most of the people that you know, work around, live with, and go to church with. But a special few did something. Mark 15, verse 42, says there was a prominent member of the Jewish council. What's the Jewish council? The Sanhedrin. His name was Joseph. He was from Arimathea. And he did something. According to Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61, he purchased a tomb. And in this tomb, he cut with his hands, out of stone, a place for Jesus. I'm asking you today to examine your heart to cut out a place to lay Jesus. And you say, but wait a minute, this is Resurrection Sunday. The answer to your first problem of how do I have right standing with God is the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross has got to be present in your stony heart. The answer to the second problem of death that has come upon all mankind is found in the fact that that tomb is now empty. He's been raised indestructible. This is what the apostles preached in Acts four two four thirty three 433 Acts seventeen thirty. Acts 24.15, Acts 24.21, the apostles all testified to one thing. It was not dying and going to heaven. It was in Christ there would be a resurrection from the dead. We see that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But Hebrews 2.8 teaches us that we also see Jesus raised to the right hand of the Father, the first human being to have conquered death. He was actually raised on the day where they waved a first fruit offering saying, This is the barley that's come in from the field. It proves that there's a lot more that'll be brought in at harvest. That's what Jesus is. His empty tomb shows that he has the power to raise you from the grave as well. His death on the cross shows that he is your ransom to be counted in the number of the children of God. I'm going to read you one more scripture, and we're going to close. It's going to come from Corinthians, the 15th chapter. This is worth meditating on. It's worth thinking about. Paul understood the things that I preached to you about today and things that I hope to understand as well as he taught about. In the 15th chapter, he showed a beautiful understanding. Starting with verse 42. Tell me when you're there. This will be our last one, but it's worth reading. Fifteen forty-two. Judas on page 1280. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is what Paul calls Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Saints, you cross over from Adam to Jesus by believing His Word, by putting it into practice. From the earthly man to the spiritual man. The earthly man brought you death. The heavenly man brings you life. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Paul calls death sleep because it's temporary. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed in victory. There was a mountain on which Isaiah spoke about death being swallowed up forever. There was a mountain on which Isaac asked, where is the Lamb? And was told, God will provide. It was on that very mountain that Jesus was crucified. And a stone's throw away from that mountain that His grave was found empty. And on that mountain, He'll return, set His feet on the ground, and initiate peace like the world has never known when Isaiah said on that mountain he meant on that mountain I long for the day Jesus returns and sets all things right but the way that I prove that I believe he will is by allowing him to set all things right in my life today the first sign that something was wrong with Cain was a frown the first sign that something's right with you ought to be that I can see your teeth a smile Show the faith in your heart by the smiles on your face on this Resurrection Sunday. Stand up. Let's pray.